Hey, Ryan here. Does your company have a commercial or industrial IoT project coming down the pipe? Reach out to Vary and let our world-class specialists in hardware, software, data science, and design bring it to life. What's nice about IoT is that it gives you more information to do whatever you want with. And you might not even know why that information is valuable until after you have it or until a certain moment or certain challenge occurs. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey, brought to you by Very. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Vary. My name is Luke Wilhelm, Chief Product Officer of Vary. And today we're joined by Sean Grundy, co-founder and CEO of Bevy. We're going to be discussing how to use your IoT data in ways your analog competitors can't. Sean, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Sean, um, let's uh, introduce you to the audience a little bit. Can you walk us through your journey and how it led to you uh, co-founding Bevy. And a follow-up question, can you give us a little background on how someone goes from being a philosophy major to founding one of the fastest-growing beverage companies in the country? Sure, sure. There's actually, I think it's a Bruce Lee quote where he says something like, I was a philosophy major, so, so I think deep thoughts about being unemployed and I do feel like unless you go to law school or unless you go to grad school for philosophy, unemployment is uh, maybe the third default option. I, I actually, after undergrad, um, went and worked for an environmental NGO, not due to any particular training, but just because I, I, I was very excited about trying to make an environmental impact. And while I was at the NGO, I got committed to this idea of starting an environmentally focused business. The motive was twofold. Part, part of it was th- that I think inherently a business with, with environmentalism baked into its business model is likely over time to have more impact than an NGO. Like the challenge with an NGO is that you always have to raise more money and your fundraising ability is often a lot more based on how much of the budget you spend on marketing versus how much of the budget you spend on actually like whatever it is you do, whether it's cleaning rivers or saving animals or, you know, what have you. Whereas in a business, if your business model is designed to to have a positive impact as you go along, then as you succeed as a business, like purely by investing in growth, which which you would do anyway, you can make a difference. And the, the idea of Bevy is really have this positive impact by replacing single-use plastic bottles and single-use cans with point-of-use beverages. So anyway, like one one reason I, I got into the idea of an environmental business was just impact. The other reason, candidly, was I, I didn't want to have an NGO salary forever. Like like I wanted at some point to have a for-profit salary. Like I think it was cool. It was cool like living in interesting places and having no money when I was like 25, but I didn't want to be doing that at 45. So I went to business school at MIT with the idea of getting a basic grounding, like a basic business education, as well as, in particular, 
finding some opportunity to join or start a company that was going to have a positive environmental impact. And I, I started Bevy coming right out of my second year of business school. You talk about the environmental impact angle. Um, can you, you know, for people that maybe aren't making that leap, I, I know from, you know, having talked with you previously, beverage manufacturers or beverage companies are, you know, one of the largest contributors to plastic waste because that's where a lot of consumer plastics are coming from. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Just some backdrop information about why Bevy is an environmental impact type company for folks that didn't make that leap with you just now? Yes. So, so it's true that there, there have been studies done by, by independent organizations to assess the biggest plastic polluters in the world. And the, the world's three largest plastic polluters are also the world's three largest beverage companies. So, so the industry goes through an astounding amount of single-use plastic, as well as, as, well as aluminum and, and fuel used to truck beverages. Like the, the, the beverage industry as a whole wastes a lot of natural resources. And the concept of Bevy was to create a high quality, essentially like a premium beverage brand that was built around a, a much more sustainable way to deliver beverages. So our product is an internet-connected beverage machine that purifies tap water and then lets users get, get a variety of custom drinks directly from the machine. Those could be plain filtered water. They could be sparkling water. It could be flavored or vitamin-infused drinks. So, so the, the idea is to provide all of these same beverages that people are purchasing in single-use disposable bottles, but making them available directly from the tap via just a good filtration system and, and good hardware that, that mixes drinks in a high-quality and repeatable way. So essentially, we cut out all of the packaging, as well as an enormous amount of the fuel that goes into uh, transporting beverages. Can you talk about some of the processes you guys use to inform decisions you make about like product, customer satisfaction, pro- product evolution, like how are you guys using data or accessing it to kind of inform some of those decisions? Sure. So, so, so for context here, um, when, when we first started the business, our whole goal was to make sustainable beverage machines. And we were really purely thinking about the hardware. We were thinking like, how do we filter water so that it reaches the level of quality that people would expect from, from a premium bottled water brand? Or how do we carbonate water and retain the CO2 at a high level, which, which, which is actually like surprisingly difficult to do in an inline tap connected system that's dispensing tens or hundreds of beverages a day? So we were all focused on the hardware side of just like making great drinks. And actually, when we first started the business, my co-founders and I made fun of IoT businesses, because at the time, this is back in 2013, a lot of companies were were um, kind of pursuing IoT almost like we felt to be trendy, whether or not there seemed to be a clear reason. But in our case, very quickly, within probably six months of incorporating, we realized that having internet connectivity would be critical to our business model. The, the initial way that we used an IoT system, and and the w- the reason we initially built it out was simply to know when to replenish machines with different ingredients. Because 
for the beverages that we create, there are fruit concentrates for the various flavored waters. There's CO2. And then filters also need to be replaced with some frequency for the flow rate of the machine to stay, to stay at a level that, that users want. So we either had to set up a route system where every week or every two weeks or every month, we went out and visited a particular machine. And, and that's actually what the majority of companies in, in our industry do, where, where they physically go to a machine, look at what needs to be replaced, and then make a second trip to actually deliver what has to be replaced. So that was one option. Or what we thought was the much better option was to know that remotely and you know, to, to track exactly how much of its useful life does a filter have left? What percent of the initial amount of CO2 in a CO2 tank is remaining? When does each flavor either run out or expire? So we initially built out the IoT system just to have that level of insight, which we use to manage field operations. And, and it was critical for that. But over time, we realized that was just scratching the surface. So, so the mantra now is really use IoT to run the business. And that applies to literally every department at Bevy. Like it applies to, to our customer service team, where if they get a call from a customer and th- they can instantly go and check, is the machine working properly? Like they can check that remotely. Is the machine working properly? Does it have all of its flavors in it? It applies to sales because we can actually see, for example, is this customer actively using their machines? Is their usage increasing or decreasing? Are they using it enough that maybe they need to buy additional machines? So, so we can reach out e- either if usage significantly increases or significantly drops, like, like we can reach out for, for either reason. And even like quality is another big area where, for example, initially we started developing features to remotely track if there was a problem in the machine, like if some component broke or if the internet connectivity got lost. But, but what that's leading to over time is now us developing features to proactively address those problems and, and, and stop them before they occur, as well as to share quality data back with our, with our manufacturing team so that we can just continually improve the product. So really like IoT is now involved in every single element of the business. Yeah, I would say Sean, it's an interesting parallel. We see a lot of that at Vary as we get involved with uh, kind of industrial IoT and putting brains on machines. And kind of what you just described is like a predictive maintenance algorithm uh, and kind of getting in front of maintenance problems that you see on a line and, and making the lines more efficient, more uptime and overall lower cost to produce things. So definitely exactly, Sean. I don't for all of the uh, vodka soda fans out there. You know we're totally dependent on high quality soda with high carbonation rates out of the gun, but it's a very mixed bag. And I always assumed this was a pretty straightforward science. I hearing you talk about it being surprisingly complicated. I don't want to derail the interview. Can you give us thirty seconds on why producing carbonated water? out of the gun, AKA the dispense, the handheld dispensing hose fed apparatus. Why is that more complicated than meets the eye? A couple of reasons. One, one reason is temperature. So the colder the water is, like the, the more it approaches zero degrees Celsius, the higher the carbonation level, colder water retains more CO2. There's actually a huge amount of research on this going right now related to climate change and um, CO2 being released from, from the ocean with climate change, but it's very relevant to beverage production as well. So one challenge is 
keeping the temperature as cold as possible, but not letting any of your tubing or pipes freeze. So you want it kind of just above zero degrees Celsius. So so that's one challenge. Another challenge is absorption time. So actually like CO2 typically needs to be exposed to water for a long time. Like I'm I'm trying to remember the research I've seen, but typically like in, in a production facility, like a bottling plant, it would be exposed for over an hour before it's bottled. But in an inline system where water is running through the machine and being dispensed, you, you don't have that, you don't have that much time. Like you don't have that much time to get your CO2 into a particular batch of water because the water's always being transported through the system. So that's another challenge. And actually I said two, but a third, a third that I'll just throw out, it turns out a surprising amount of the CO2 in, in dispensing systems is actually lost in the final dispensing. Often as the carbonated water pours out of whether it's a bar gun or the nozzle of a soda fountain, often like as it's pouring out and hitting the cup is when the water's most agitated and the CO2 gas escapes the water. So um, th- those are all factors to, to deal with when trying to produce high quality sparkling water consistently. <laughs> totally derailed this again, but I've always wondered that. Thanks for, um, <laughs> thanks for humoring me. This is super interesting. Mechanical engineers. I've spent too much time thinking about it, but like we definitely had mechanical engineers join our team who before joining were skeptical, especially if they came from say robotics, they were like skeptical the work would be hard enough to be, to be very interesting to them. And then we started explaining some of these problems and they were like, okay, yeah, like I, I see how that would be. I see, I see how this would keep me busy for, for uh, at least a couple months. Yeah, it is. It is surprisingly difficult. So, okay, on the subject of MEs and hardware, um, you know, having a pretty solid understanding of machine performance is pretty, I think, to put it mildly, important for having a successful connected device, like understanding how it's failing, you know, how it's doing, what needs to be replaced, et cetera. As you look back at you guys' journey, you know, everybody we interview, I mean, 100%, 100% of the people we interview have had like big failures, not 100% is comfortable talking about them on the air, but 100% has had the, fa- you know, the failures, lessons learned. What are some things that you guys learned or did wrong along the way that, you know, have, have made you uh, stronger or that you, you know, and, or that you wish you would have done differently looking back? In, in hardware in particular, because you could literally take your pick of like, function and i can give you our problems yes yes hardware your just your journey as it pertains to hardware of the you know the connected device you you got it because yeah we have no shortage of other uh, other challenges for hardware in particular there there are a couple issues One, one is forecasting cost is always extremely difficult so i think one lesson learned for me is always err on the side of like if you have a high estimate and low estimate, always expect it to, to cost closer to the high estimate, at least, or, or to at least plan for that. Another key area just with, with hardware development in general has, is really to like invest as much as possible in quality from day one. And, and by quality, I mean really controlling for breakdowns as well as, as, well as being thoughtful about what types of breakdowns, if you have limited resources, what types of breakdowns do you want to prioritize avoiding? 
In the beginning with us, like, well, like when we first launched our product back in 2015, we, we didn't really think that much about it. Like we, we tried our best to make machines work well. If a machine ever broke down, we just tried to have great customer service. So like we sell primarily to offices. If we had a machine in someone's office and all of a sudden the touchscreen died and nobody could dispense any beverages or um, the blue, like there used to be this uh, Bluetooth connection between, between our touchscreen and the machine controls. So like if that went out, the touchscreen itself worked, but it didn't actually dispense beverages as, as um, people wished. When that kind of issue happened, we would just hustle over. So we we would we would get to that office as quickly as possible, almost always same day. We'd we'd sometimes stop and buy cookies on our way to visit the client, and literally like use a box of cookies to smooth over the the fact that um, the fact that the customer's machine wasn't working. And and we'd solve their problem, get the machine up and running, and move on. It probably wasn't until two to three years later that we actually started systematically collecting and, and collecting and categorizing breakdown data. And that, that was a big miss. That, that was a big miss on our part because we, we had an opportunity early on to, um, to be really rigorous about documenting the failure mode, taking photos, sh- sharing, sharing the, the, the instances as well as the high-level summary of data of what exactly was breaking and why with our with our contract manufacturers so that and with our suppliers so that they could so that they could help diagnose the issues and make sure they didn't happen again as well as honestly to fully understand our unit economics because no matter what you do some level of breakdowns is going to occur like that's that's inevitable I, I'd say in our early years we were just so focused on like fix the issue show great customer service move on that we missed this opportunity to be more structured around machine quality. And we probably could have saved ourselves cost and, and just emotional pain over the years had we, had we invested in that sooner. Yeah, I think it's like another way of describing that is it's kind of that feedback part of the product development life cycle. Like you come up with an idea, you build it, you ship it. And if you don't do a good job of connecting the lessons learned from the field back to the product development cycle, your next generation is not going to be as good as it could have been because you didn't learn all those lessons and keep that uh, that fortuitous cycle going. Exactly. And ideally, it wouldn't just be like for a one-time post-mortem. Ideally, it's like an ongoing, you know, weekly or monthly or quarterly activity where you're constantly reviewing, okay, what are the new issues that are popping up, um, diagnosing what the root cause is, sharing that information back with your contract manufacturers and with your suppliers, finding new suppliers if needed. But like, I can tell you for sure that if I ever start another hardware company from the very beginning, even if we only have whatever the product is, 10 or 100 products in the field, there's going to be something, whether it's just a spreadsheet or a more sophisticated system, there, there will be somewhere where we're tracking the serial number of the product, the date an error occurred, the the characteristics of that error, and just uh, develop a culture really early of of focusing on that, as well as I think I, I would I would try to be more structured early uh, about figuring out like 
what your tolerance is for, for different errors to occur. Cause that's important as well. Like you could eliminate them completely possibly with some massive amount of spending, but then your product would be so expensive. No one would ever buy it. So I think it's important to, to really think through like kind of what, what's an appropriate frequency of different types of errors occurring. Yeah. I think what you're basically describing is how IOT is empowering smarter and smarter uh, quality systems really. Cause like what you're describing is a quality system that you put into your design and manufacturing and this connectivity to it and thinking about it very early in the product design cycle really enables uh, that to be a much better than it has been in the analog. Days. Exactly. Sean, pushing the topic forward a little bit. So we talked to a lot of companies that are, they've, they're innovators, they're innovative. Um, oftentimes they, you know, try to do a lot themselves. You know, I'd vary. One of the things that we say a lot is you can, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. You know, these are the conversations we have with clients a lot. What are some of the things that you think of as core to what Bevy does and needs to be great at versus areas where you guys look for partners, uh, you know, that would be able to either do it more cheaply or quickly, or they're just not things where you think it's important for you guys to build up that competency. What, what are the things that you guys want to be great at and do not at all think is important to be great at? Sure. So, so one challenge, candidly, one challenge I have with the core competency model is that I, I, I think sometimes it gets used as an excuse to like, it gets used by companies as an excuse to let like they use it to let themselves off the hook. It gets used as an excuse to not hire someone great in each area. And my, my thought, the way I think about core competencies is more around like, where do we want to invest the highest amounts of budget? And even if there's some area of the business where we're primarily outsourcing and we're only going to invest like 1% of budget there, I want that one person to be like a star, you know, like the one person who's managing the or, or partnering with, with outsource teams should be really good. Um, but for us in the beginning, we did nearly everything ourselves. Like even for the first handful of machines, we did assembly in-house. And then as time went on, as as we, we had to start allocating budget, it really became clear that we needed to start shedding certain functions and partnering out certain functions. And, and that's where I think we had to get serious about core competencies, like thinking of it as, you know, if we're going to invest like 20 or 30% of our company budget in one area, that better be our own core competency. It, it, it varies by department. Like right now, we, we, outsource, we, we outsource quite a number of things. And the, the way we think about it, I think, varies by department. From an engineering perspective, we think a lot about how much work is recurring versus one time and how much work is like isolated versus like heavily integrated with, with the rest of the product. So, so an example where we outsourced with some considerable success, it was actually a mix of, of in-house and outsourced development work was what was a designing, designing a web app for touchless dispensing, which we had to do in a hurry due to COVID. And even though there's an area of interface with the machine, a lot of aspects of that don't actually stand independently and don't need to like that heavily integrated into, into what the rest of our team is doing. So I think that's a great candidate for outsourcing. Another area that will outsource is um, product development that's very like one time. Like if there's a big project that we have to do once, like designing 
the electronics of a system, we can rely on partners to help develop that. Whereas if it's something that that requires like tons of ongoing iteration, like like more of our uh, like more of the machine controls that manage dispensing, or, or or like the logistics app that we and our distributors use to manage machines in the field, there were there were pushing probably monthly updates. So it makes sense for us to own it, ju- just because of the frequency of iteration and and the level of interaction with um with our other development work, and then. More broadly, we really think about our our core competencies today as product development, like, and I mean that holistically, like engineering and and what what typically gets called design, and and then what we're really attempting to do is build a brand around around those products that like like build a brand around the quality of the user experience. So so I'd say. We view brand as a core competency, but not not in the way most companies would use it. Like not in terms of like awesome ads. Like we don't really spend any money on ads. M- more like the the quality of the user experience itself. And most other areas are partially outsourced. Whether that's manufacturing, whether that's field service, um, e- even sales. In in some cases, we we go to market with a number of channel partners who uh, who, in addition to our own team, are actively selling. Would you say that, like, I think of Dyson as a company that feels a little bit like what you just described. I don't know if you would appreciate that comparison, but Dyson's brand, I know if I buy a Dyson product, forget about advertising, like you said, I know if I buy a Dyson product, it's going to be powerful, it's going to age well, it's going to do the job well. Is that like what you're talking about? Exactly. Sean, you mentioned contract manufacturers, I had a follow-up question. For folks out there that are developing a product and either they've had a bad experience or they uh, have never uh, had a, a product manufactured via a contract manufacturer, what are some mistakes you made that you would tell to this person out here, hey, be aware of this, or here is something that worked well for this? If you had just two or three hot tips what is what is something that you would tell to someone over a beer that was looking to enter into a contract manufacturer relationship? Sure, uh, absolutely. I th- I think the two biggest tips I have one is to this sounds probably obvious, but hire someone to lead the manufacturing search for for, for a contract manufacturing partner that's done it before, and and the second tip is really when evaluating potential partners try to be a big fish in a small pond versus a small fish in a big pond. Um, in terms of someone, and, and, and these are linked. So, so in terms of getting someone to run the process, a search for a contract manufacturer can look very different. And I think it's important, especially if you're a startup, to get someone who's found a contract manufacturer in a startup context before. And I say that because when, if you work at a large company that is going to spend tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars manufacturing products each year, you'll have contract manufacturers knocking on your door, begging for your business. And and the process of selection is much more about reviewing their proposals and deciding who's a good fit for you. If you're in a startup trying to find your first contract manufacturer, you probably have little to no revenue. And you have to realize that any contract manufacturer has to take a pretty significant risk 
in order to be willing to work with you. Like there's real opportunity cost for them in giving up the floor space and the resources to um, focus on your business. Th- there's even like real time commitment required from them just to put together a thoughtful quote. They really have to understand your product and go through your bill of materials and think through how they'd source everything. And if you're part of a startup trying to get somebody to, to manufacture for you, it's much more of a process of you selling them versus them selling you. Like you really have to go out and pitch and kind of hunt the business and convince them why you're going to grow and why you're going to be a valuable investment. And it, that, that just might take a different skill set from someone that's only, that's only found a contract manufacturer as part of a big company. As, as being part of like large companies like the Apples of the world and small companies like many of the startups that I've been in, I completely agree with you. And you have to remember that the, that CM world is a very cutthroat model. Like their profit margins are not huge. And I think one of the startup things that people don't appreciate is how much work it puts on the startup company, your company, to actually define your product to a point that anybody can go build it. Uh, you take a lot of that for granted. And that, that gets under underappreciated at the beginning. It be a massive time commitment they didn't think about or hire for. Uh, absolutely. And and that's an area, too, where, where I feel like it's good to get someone who's led a manufacturing process in a startup context before, in part because they know to look for a contract manufacturer that can function with a startup. Like they, like they know to look for a contract manufacturer that is used to dealing with messy documentation or is used to having to help startup source when they don't know how to do it versus in a larger company, often, often the company already has a lot of skill sets, which as a startup, you'll be relying on your contract manufacturer for. The, the other big area about, about uh, being a big fish in a small pond, we have worked with a couple of contract manufacturers before, and especially in our early years, we felt a lot of pressure to partner with a large international contract manufacturer. And that pressure honestly wasn't coming from customers. It wasn't so much about needing to cut costs. It was more like it was more like proof of scalability. Like in the beginning, we were really concerned with scalability. And I think to facilitate our own fundraises, like to attract venture capital, we thought it was really important to find some large international contract manufacturer just to demonstrate that there would be no supply shortage if demand really took off. Just to say like, hey, you're investing millions of dollars in us. We're going to spend a lot of that in sales and marketing. Even if demand goes through the roof, We've got this huge international contract manufacturer. Like, there's no way we'll ever not not be able to produce enough machines. And it was this way of kind of conveying that we were serious. And in retrospect, I think it was a mistake to do that too early. Like, I think I found that there are so many benefits to working with a like a small, often local contract manufacturer in terms of like mindshare. You know, like if, if you're working with a huge contract manufacturer and you're a startup and you have a problem and they're also supporting Apple and Apple has a problem, I mean, Apple's going to get their help. Like, we're not going to get their help. Versus if it's a small contract manufacturer where we make up a significant share of their business, then we'll be the, the client that gets support, whether it's support with quality or support with working with suppliers or, or whatever issue there may be. And the other issue here is actually that a lot of people don't think about this, but often if you're in the hardware business, 
your contract manufacturer is a bigger creditor than your bank. That's something that I did not fully appreciate. But, but often the way it works is your contract manufacturer places purchase orders for all the components that go into your hardware device several months out. And they're, they're paying for those in advance of delivery and in advance of assembling machines. And that can add up in, in our company and in um, many other companies, that can add up to millions of dollars of component costs being floated by your contract manufacturer. And you, you, you probably like when selecting the CM, or at least historically, like we went when selecting our contract manufacturers, didn't always appreciate that. Like we didn't always appreciate that this is not just a production partnership. This is a serious financial partnership as well. And the same way that we're very careful about selecting what bank we work with or what investor we work with, essentially realizing that your contract manufacturer is investing in you too. And you're more likely to get good investment terms when it's a company that really cares about you, where you're, where you're a very important part of their business. That's great. Sean, follow-up question. When you're talking about, you know, you were just talking about outsourcing and what that looks like. As you guys have gone through the product development, what have been some, you know, critically important things that you guys have selected uh, to, to outsource to a partner? I'm looking for like technical things, not like brand help work, but like in the actual product. What, what are some times when you said, hey, uh, for example, uh, firmware? You know, we're going to go out and find a partner because this is really important. It's an extremely specialized skill. Can you think of an example of a time where either you did that or you wish you had done that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so all our, as mentioned, all our manufacturing, like machine manufacturing, as well as all our flavor manufacturing is, is outsourced and done by partners. Firmware is an interesting example. We have We have absolutely outsourced um, outsourced firmware development before, in part because on, on a lot of the electronic components in a machine, they don't need to be iterated on all that much. It's more they have to be done right once and then maybe modified from time to time, but done, but done right before, um, be, before your product is ready for manufacturing. Um, so, so for a lot of that work that doesn't need to be constantly iterated on, we found that it's, it it can be more efficient to outsource it and, and, um, just make sure you're getting the right partner, like like make sure you're prioritizing the right partner in terms of work. I I wish we had, I, I, I wish we had, um, outsourced one area. I, I go back and forth on it, but, but one area, when I think about our early product development, we spent an enormous amount of time on the physical look and feel of the machine. Like we put a lot of effort into the frames of our initial machines. And I remember when we were first producing them back in 2015, 2016, like at one point we spent a couple months just trying to get the doors to like fit properly. And we realized that doors can actually doors on like a large steel machine can actually be quite difficult to align and they can get bent or messed up in shipping. And we spent a couple months working on that ourselves and didn't really at the time think about the opportunity cost. And this is at a time when we had a smaller team too. So, so the opportunity cost was more serious. And um, the, what, what I realized is like, 
in retrospect, the opportunity cost was that a lot of the actual beverage components, which determine the temperature, the carbonation level, the flavor mixing, the 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 reliability and consistency of, of the beverages that, that people get, um, a lot of those we were just we were just buying off the shelf, um, just because that was faster and um, and that's what we had time for, given all the all the effort we were putting into like the physical frame of the machine, and like that's an area where, in retrospect, there are a lot of companies out there that are great at making doors. Like we we could have pretty easily um, outsourced that and found some company that could make a door that sealed properly. And we we should have instead probably focused on the areas where there's real um, where there's real IP, you know, like like the actual proprietary areas that determine the success of the business, like like the the all the components that mix the beverages themselves and um, give users the right experience. It's interesting. Where so where we are with Very, we've kind of built a complete end to end, like from the user interface, the UI UX to the front end, to the cloud, to the back end, to the hardware, to the physical product designs. Like we can do all these different things. And people come to us with a very crazy range of asks. And what we try to do is say, look, if you're gonna do a thing, if you need to be able to do a thing over and over again for every generation or continuously stay on top of it, that's the thing you really should staff up for. And we can help you do that. We can help you find the right people to do that. But it's important that you have that capability. And where we think we try to step in, just like the door manufacturer and the door example, is a place where we have a great expertise set that can solve a problem that you need to solve once and that you can maximize that value from, but you don't need every single time. And I think that's kind of how our business model works and why we think it brings value to companies like yours. Yeah, and I'm sure there's still a lot of repeat business for you guys in that, right? If you have like a version 2, soon enough the company needs a version 2.1 or, or a version 2.2 or there are new features they want. So it's like there's still still the 100, 100%. What, what winds up happening is a lot of times, like they have such a great experience with working with us that they'll, they'll, in their next iteration, they'll have a different one-time thing they need to go do. And they know that while they did a different one-time thing with this last time, we, they know we also have the skill set to cover that this one time. And so they, they, it kind of moves around the expertise set depending on where they are in their product list. Like, well, That's interesting. That makes sense. John, moving towards a close now, um, I have two questions for you. One, I, I don't, this is, this is definitely solidly the world according to Ryan, but you and I had a, a you and I and Luke had a, a really interesting conversation about philosophy in the pre-interview, and it turned out that all of us had uh, recently read Plato's Republic. Which I mean, good luck getting three people together that had recently read that. But I was just kind of curious to read it. So, and I don't know why Luke read it, but love it. Um, I think of philosophy. You asked me why I was interested in it, and I took the weekend to really think about the answer. And I think that for me, the answer was I really. I'm interested in uncovering fundamental truths, you know, things that are just fundamentally true. And I, I, I find that often in philosophy, whether or not you agree with that definition, I'm not going to ask a guy, a Princeton guy who studied nothing but philosophy, whether or not I've defined philosophy correctly. Let's move past that. My question is, what's a fundamental truth you've discovered about IOT? Um, I, I, I mean, it, it I haven't I haven't thought about it this way before, but but it's funny, right? Like like if you view philosophy as this like search for search for truth, I mean what what's nice about IoT is that it just gives you more information. 
Um, it gives you more information to do whatever you want with. And you might not even know why that information is valuable until after you have it or until uh, until um, a, a certain moment or certain challenge occurs. So, so that's, anyway, that, that's, that's one thing, right? That, that it's just this, this uh, source of knowledge about your own product and your own customers. And another, um, another really interesting thing I found with IoT, and this is something we haven't taken enough advantage of yet, but ideally will over time, is that the more objects you're connecting, essentially like the more valuable the overall data set of like IoT things becomes like th- there are um, th- there are pieces of information that might not be particularly useful on their own, but might be very useful when coupled with other information. So, so like an example of this would be for a bevy a bevy user. We don't aside from our touchless dispensing web app, we don't currently have like a, a user app where users say store their preferences. But part of the reason part of the reason we haven't developed one yet. It, Part of it's just bandwidth and priorities, but but it's also because th- there's not all that much exciting information to track other than like how much water you're drinking, maybe w- what vitamins you're consuming, li- like some basic info like that. And on its own, that's probably not particularly interesting to track like how many drinks a day you're getting. But what I realized is like in tandem with other information, if someone has that information, but they also have a Fitbit or a Whoop, and they also know like how well they slept or how good they feel or overall how healthy they are. And all of a sudden you can correlate, you, you can correlate the information and realize that like, oh, when you drink more water or when you drink this amount, this is the right, uh, this is the right amount for you, for you to like feel good or, or sleep well, or, or have a great workout. Um, th- that starts becoming really interesting. So I think like, the, the more the more we can combine data sets, the more valuable it all becomes. So follow-up question, Sean. It's the time of Skynet, and the robot, uh, the machine uprising has begun. Bevy's machines are uh, out front in, uh, in the assault against the humans. Do you feel incredibly proud that your machines are intelligent enough to be to play a leadership role in the uprising, or are you horrified that you have helped make Skynet possible? I'm a I'm a John Connor fan, so so probably probably more horrified. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. But. We we once we once interviewed we once interviewed this guy, and he he was a software engineer, and I asked him why he was excited to join Bevy. And like the answer was typically like, like a typical answer would be like, I'm excited about the environmental impact or like, I love IOT and, and I think IOT devices are fun. Um, like those would be typical answers. And his answer was like, he's like, if Bevy succeeds, you'll eventually control people's water supply because you'll have the device. You'll have the device between the municipal tap that's purifying the water and creating water that people can drink. And he's like, as pollution increases, this will become more and more valuable. And eventually like the company that controls the world's water supply will have the most power. And I was like, 
Oh my God, we 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 yeah, can't. Like yeah, and, road turn. <laughs> I know, I know. And he was really he was really excited about that potential power. And I was like, oh, I don't think he's a good fit for us. But um, so 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 we didn't hire him. But but yeah, yeah, it is it is scary, I guess, when, when you think of like, when yeah yeah when you think of all of the data, kind kind of. All, all of the data available on us. I think in our case, it's relatively benign. Like, like we're, we're not collecting personal info. You know, I think I think in our case, it's all it's all uh, relatively benign. Last question: What's a company in the IoT space that you guys really look up to and admire? You know, somebody that Bevy says, "Hey, that's we want to be like them when we grow up." The the company that that we most emulate i'd say is peloton also i mean we also it's hard to be in the hardware business and not think about apple you know we we also of course think about think about what we can learn from apple but but i'd say the company we most emulate is peloton just in terms of they they took what was considered a boring product in their case a stationary bike in our case a water machine they completely redesigned it with extreme focus on the user experience, like really trying to get the details right so that people love the product. They created a recurring revenue business model, which we did as well. And um, and they really have now built a brand around how good their product is, like both the physical product itself, as well as the, the content that they stream. And Th- that is the same opportunity I see for Bevy. Like, like that, that's essentially what we're trying to do, to really create this product that's best in class, that, that just relies on excellent engineering and like build a brand around it that, th- that becomes extremely difficult to imitate because like you can't copy the brand unless you can outdo our years of engineering. We are also huge fans of Peloton. Peloton's a big client of ours. But so it sounds like the takeaway is there's there's a lot of things that can be maybe copied or fast followed, but you know a really well engineered end to end product is not one of those things. There's really no shortcut, and that's the piece that you guys are saying. Peloton did that. That's that's the bevy approach. Exactly. Exactly. Like rather than having our brand be based on like awesome TV ads or like a celebrity sponsor or something that with money you can kind of quickly copy. Like it's really hard. If your brand is built around quality, even with a lot of money, it's really hard to, to, to outdo another company on the details of the engineering and the product experience without putting in the work, like without going through the design cycles and seeing yourself what goes wrong and, and fixing that over time. So, so, so I, I just feel like, especially if you're a startup where you don't have a lot of money, but you do have good people and de- and, and dedicated people, it's really an, op- and, and where you're first to market, it's really an opportunity to, uh, to get a leg up. So, Sean, for all the philosophers out there listening today, we're, as we move to to wrap this episode up, uh, for all the philosophers turned entrepreneurs that want to follow you, where where can folks find you out on the internet? I do not really have a social media presence. Like, I'm not I'm not really LinkedIn is honestly it's pretty lame, but LinkedIn is like the only uh, social media app that I use. So, so I guess LinkedIn, or you could just email me. 
my email is just my first name at bevy.co. So Sean, S-E-A-N, at bevy.co. Couldn't afford the M. <laughs> All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Ryan. This is Luke. Thanks for listening. See you guys on the internet. Thanks, guys. You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com. You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? Send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.